So, Mark. Yes. This movie's got a lot of rocks. This movie rocks. It does rock. I think that's a fair thing to say. It's also full of rocks. People are going into rocks. They're picking up rocks. They're studying rocks. It's just a rockapalooza. They do talk a lot about rocks. Yeah. At one point, they're inside uh, kind of a rock. I don't, I don't know if geodes are rocks or not. Geodes are rocks. Okay, so they go inside a rock. That part, I was confused by. I have commentary <laughs> on that part. Oh, yeah? You didn't think that totally made sense? (laughs) Where they drill into the geode, they hang out in it for a while, and then they're like, oh, the pressure, the, like, rock is a cocoon. And I got there long before they did, of like, yeah, but you punched a hole in it, so it's no longer protected. Just the existence of a void space that large in the mantle is not very realistic. Like, the pressure there is so hot. It's a cobalt. It's cobalt. But the mantle's not... Like, there probably isn't even cobalt in the mantle. Doesn't make any sense. Have you been there? Naomi, it's cobalt. You don't need any more explanation. It's funny because I remember when I watched Journey to the Center of the Earth, they also enter a geode void in the mantle. And that was before I had a degree in geology. And I still thought it was really weird that there could be a void. And now I know with my degree in geology, that it's definitely bullshit. (laughs) So I can't speak to Journey to the Center of the Earth, but I did think when they had the geode in this movie, like, oh, this is a way to, like, get to play with hollow Earth stuff a little bit when your movie has explicitly stated that the Earth is not hollow. (laughs) If they had just shown up in the core and there were dinosaurs, I would have been thrilled. (laughs) Mark, do you know that in the the legendary Monsterverse, the, like, Kong Skull Island, Godzilla vs. Kong movies, and stuff like that. It's canon in that universe that all of these big monsters come from Hollow World. Really? Yeah, in Godzilla vs. Kong, they go to Hollow World and, like, fight some big old monsters. <laughs> they, like, bring King Kong with them. And because, like, their their way of acknowledging gravity is, like, at some point in Hollow World, gravity just flips the other way. <laughs> so, Do you know about the whales it's a really cool fight on scene. Io? There's this. Sorry? I said, do you know about the whales on Io? There's this D- no. weird theory. So there's a moon of, I think it's Jupiter, and it's. Isn't it volcanic? I don't. I think or it is. Or was that just like a carbon strip that I no, read when I was. No, nine. it is volcanic, but its crust is made of ice, and then it's hypothesized that there's an ocean under the ice. So a lot of people like to say, well, for all we know, there are whales down there. Like, we can't see that there aren't. Or we might think they're whales, but they're actually core drilling human crap yeah exactly right exactly i liked the part in this movie where they like break through to the core and you discover that like the core is not solid or even like a whole sphere of stuff like it's the core is basically like an ocean right it's flat (laughs) it's got a surface on one part you can fly over the surface of the molten core the effects showing the craft flying well i guess not flying were so interesting to me because I was like, what is the presumed camera angle here? Like, what <laughs> What are we seeing? When they brought on an astronaut to guide this ship, my first thought was the Futurama joke where their spaceship is getting pulled underwater by a giant fish. And he's like, we're surrounded by hundreds of Gs of pressure. And someone asked the professor, Professor, how many Gs can we withstand? And the professor says, well, it's a spaceship, so zero. (laughs) 
<laughs> I like the fact that they put astronauts to drill into the Earth is an exact inversion of Armageddon, where they get, like, oil rig people to go to space. This is the anti-Armageddon. Yeah, this puts astronauts drilling into the Earth. That sends drillers to the asteroid. I liked them calling themselves Terranauts. <laughs> yes. Not a bad name, honestly. So, Mark. Yeah. In the spirit of all the rocks in this movie, uh-huh. I was wondering, and maybe your answer might be from this movie, what is your favorite movie rock? I mean, there are some great options in this movie, but when I personally am building a giant laser for GPS reasons, but mostly for military purposes, there's only one rock I can turn to, and that's the diamonds from the Mines of Solomon in the middle of Conco, guarded by weird mutated white gorillas congo a movie cited in roger ebert's review of this movie wait really (laughs) yes i didn't even know that it was just one of the first rocks i could think of because of how much they care about those diamonds ebert gave this movie two and a half stars out of four okay not bad honestly (laughs) pretty high his whole review is like what do you want from me i loved this movie (laughs) He said, it's, quote, only a notch down from Congo, Anaconda, Tomb Raider, and other films which those with too little taste think they have too much taste to enjoy. (laughs) Now, that is a fantastic line. Like, what an endorsement. I mean, this movie, I cannot wait to talk about it. But before we do, Will, what is your favorite movie, Rock? So, I thought of this cold open while I was watching the movie, which was like three hours ago that I hit play on it. Pulling a real Mark move here. It's a very Mark move. I'm very fresh. And so I was just anytime a movie rock popped into my head making a list. So I have a bunch here. For my favorites, I was torn between sort of my, I have like a top two, but my like runner up beneath that is the stone that the sword was in. That's a really good Good rock. Pretty good rock. The question is, is the rock also magical, or is it all in the sword? I like to think the rock plays I a part. I also like to think I the think rock I think the rock is... plays a key part. Yeah. It's the, you know, it's the, Naomi, what's the adjective for, like, a rock thing? Lithologic. Lithologic? It's like the lithologic equivalent of the Lady of the Lake. It is the magic yeah. thing that can give you the sword. Yeah, true. I can't believe there are two magic swords in the Arthurverse. So the stone was, was my sort of runner-up, and my other two are... The Wishing Rock from Wonder Woman 1984. Mark, do you know the premise of Wonder Woman 1984? I do not. And I now have lost all interest learning that there's a thing called <laughs> The Wishing Rock. I think it has some other premise. See, this is where a lot of people didn't like it because it's like weirdly silly. That is what I like about it. I have other problems with it, but I'm more positive on it than most people. Wonder Woman 1984, the main villain is Pedro Pascal, who finds like a wishing rock. That can grant people wishes. And he uses it to make himself like an 80s oil tycoon. (laughs) And then meanwhile, he's also like to make himself more powerful and beloved, like granting other people's wishes and keeps like trying to trick people into wishing for stuff. I thought Cheetah was the villain of that movie. She's like the brawn villain, but Pedro Pascal is the like ultimate villain. Interesting. I I think he's great in that movie he's never bad my other rock is the rock from inherit the wind that proves the earth is older than six thousand years (laughs) i have not seen the movie version so the only version i know is matt greiser as the lead 
This is the college production I directed. Indeed it is. With a rock that I looted from the koi pond on Georgetown's campus. <laughs> that rock that you looted is probably also older than 6,000 years old, just by the nature of how rocks work. Yeah, and that, that's the thing. Like, it, And this was just like our friend, Matt was on the show. He did our Raiders of the Lost Ark episode. Another movie with a great rock, The Big Boulder. But in the movie, it's like Spencer Tracy yelling about a rock, and it's great. I think my favorite movie rock is The Heart of Tefiti from Moana. Oh, that's an excellent oh, answer. And good, my runner-up is the rock that was covered in bioluminescent algae that they trick the crab with. You know, I like kept thinking of rocks, and I like Moana didn't come into my head at all. I thought of Moana, and then I couldn't remember any rocks from it. Also, Tefiti... And that's on me. Tefiti herself is made of lava so that i guess she could be a rock not just her heart lots of good rocks in that movie now i'm thinking about disney release stuff from that era like do the volcanoes from the short lava count i think yes if so they are very high up in my list they're also (laughs) i watched that short so many times (laughs) really yeah i don't know what it was but for some reason i was really into lava no if i could pick like a favorite like thing on screen Lava would be, like, in my top five across all, like, screen images. Filmed media. Yeah, filmed media. That's a good way of putting it. Will, the volcanoes fall in love. It's so... Yeah, they sure do. It's so nice. It's so sweet. What was that attached to? Inside Out? I think it was... Yeah, it was attached to Inside Out. But did Moana come out after Inside Out? Because people yes. like to draw parallels between the shape of the volcanoes in the end of lava and the shape of at least one of the islands in Moana. But those movies are also made by different studios. Well, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> like, because lava's Pixar and Moana is Disney Animation. So, like, different people made them. I see, yeah. Dare to dream, I guess. Um, some other rocks that made my list. Kryptonite, obviously. Great rock. Um, the Resurrection Stone from Harry Potter. That's a good one. That's another wishing rock in a way. <laughs> and I kid you not, so I saw the 3D re-release of Avatar yesterday. No, two days ago. And I wrote Unobtainium on this list, and then they said Unobtainium five times uh-huh. in this movie. <laughs> but in this movie, it wasn't a rock. It was a, like, synthesized Yeah, that's true. Thing. I don't know. Whereas in Avatar, it is a naturally occurring mineral. If it's a mineral, it's not a rock. See, I, I don't know that. That's why we need you here. Yeah. yeah, we need your expertise because I also, I googled, is ice a rock? And <laughs> it's not. Ice it is, is a mineral. mineral no, it's... If it's naturally occurring. Yeah. So snow is little minerals falling from the sky. Another thing that's little minerals is salt in your salt shaker. The most delicious rock. Oh, yeah. Just ask any Geology 101 student who was required to lick it to identify it. So what is the most delicious rock then? That's a good question. People talk about rock salt, which is primarily salt, the mineral. But I don't know what exactly the distinction is. I guess like a clump of salt would be a rock because a rock is an ag- is like a group of minerals. I just like for like, I don't know. I, I've learned that cobalt is pretty powerful. Does it also taste good? I couldn't tell you. Actually, I've never had cobalt, I think, in my mouth before. So is it cobalt? Or, uh, uh, cobalt is a... Uh, Element? Element. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, can you eat it? <laughs> Why don't it you try it, Will? Heavy. Let us know how it goes. I don't know how to get cobalt. I know, like, you know, I assume you have, like, some warehouse full of rocks. Me? Full of cobalt? Yeah. 
Like the Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouse. Well, why don't we just... And it's just aisles and aisles of rocks. We can just make a ship of unobtainium and then go down into the mantle to collect some cobalt. I choose to believe that this movie is set in the Avatar universe because Avatar is only set like 150, 200 years from now. So, like, what I suspect is that in the joint shared universe of Avatar and the core, the first contact with the Promethean system has already been made. They've already discovered unobtainium. They've brought it back. Delroy Lindo got his hands on some of it to make this thing. But ultimately, the corporation from Avatar is going to realize they can make a lot of money mining for all of it. Do you think that James Cameron stole the name unobtainium from this movie? I think that James Cameron already had a draft of Avatar by the time this movie came out because he spent ages trying to get it mm-hmm. made, like waiting for the technology. And so I think maybe he was like throwing back drinks with John Amiel one day, or maybe he was throwing back drinks with the movie's screenwriter, John Rogers, who also wrote Marry Me. And he was like, yo, maybe you can help me like build up the hype for this movie I'm trying to get made. And so the core was supposed to be like the soft launch for Avatar, but then it was a flop. This is my theory that I'm working out. Now here I did, I want to actually cover this because I Googled it and it's interesting. Unobtainium was first used in the 1950s by aerospace engineers. Yes. I had no idea that it was that old. Wait, like the name or like? Yeah. So they, it's according to Wikipedia, it's been used for unusual or costly materials or when theoretically considering a material perfect for their needs in all respects, except that it does not exist. Right. So you're like, we'd be able to do this experiment. Like we put all this stuff together and then we would also need this mineral or this element that like is totally frictionless and you call it unobtainium right. for the purpose of the thought I experiment. I mean it's not that creative of a name when it comes down to it. I mean this movie makes fun of it. Yeah. Like Delroy Lindo says unobtainium and Aaron Eckert laughs at him. <laughs> well I just also like that in a way the movie Avatar took forever to make because he was waiting for unobtainium to be invented. Had to get it delivered. I'm looking at similar terms and I really like hand wavium. <laughs> oh, that's good. But yeah, that that's my rock list. Um, I think the other ones that I, I said were uh, Pride Rock from The Lion King. Pride Rock is a very good rock. Um, the, uh, the like stones from Temple of Doom. Indiana Jones, very rocky franchise. Don't forget the uh, piece of Stonehenge from uh, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. You know, that's a great answer. The piece of Stonehenge. And then like after that, you're getting into statues. And I don't think that's quite what we're getting at. Statues aren't naturally occurring. Right. And, like, Stonehenge isn't quite naturally occurring, but it's old enough that you let it slide. Well, and it still looks like a chunky rock. It's not, like, in the shape of a person. Yeah. Well, I feel like this has been a very good warm-up for us, (laughs) because this is going to be a science-heavy episode. We're about to learn a lot, friends. We're going to learn a lot, all from each other and from this movie. So I think we should get rolling. Yes. Welcome to We digging, maybe. I'm out. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world. So, like, cobalt has, like, (laughs) unique properties. Is this correct? Like, can cobalt withstand magma? I feel like it's a pressure question more than it's a temperature question at this point, honestly. Also, the mantle is not made of magma. Uh, that makes sense. <laughs> I recently 
I don't remember why. I had got some question from a student that required me to explain plate tectonics. <laughs> and I was like, I have like a 10-year-old's understanding of this, but I was like a very interested 10-year-old, <laughs> so I can do my best here. Lots of plate tectonics to talk about in this movie. And yeah. incorrect plate tectonics. So I was thinking a lot about the, le- the like impromptu like earth sciences discussion that I led last week. Where again, like, I think I probably know more than random person off the street, but I haven't read a book about it since like 2006. Uh, So we also are investigating, are these people actually dateable or even likable? Or did the writer of this movie win his well-deserved PhD for writing this script in (laughs) geology? Because I can only imagine the scientific breakthroughs that resulted from this movie. Aaron Eckert signed his PhD, no questions asked, just like he did for his graduate students. This movie is constantly cited on lists of, like, the worst science for movies, and was even specifically called out by Dustin Hoffman when they were launching the Science and Entertainment Exchange. Famous geologist Dustin Hoffman. Right. Famous geologist, star of the movie Sphere, the famously scientifically rigorous movie. This movie feels like it is actively opposed to getting the science correct, though. At one point, they say just the core of the Earth is the size of Mars. That's true. And that's, is that true? I looked it up because I also was skeptical, and they have very similar radius. Huh. Wow. Is so that we, inner we... core or outer core included? Just Outer curious. core inclu- included. Okay. Yeah. Wow, as you can hear, we've got a lot to talk about today. We've also got to talk about romance, such as it is, and whether there is any romance, which I think is worthy of discussion. So this week, we are joined by my sister-in-law and actual geologist, (laughs) Naomi, to talk about the science and the love, and the love of science, in the 2003 disaster film, The Core. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. Naomi, I sent you a list of geology movies, from which you chose The Core. Yeah. Which I think none of us had seen before. Yeah, true. Are there other geology? Like, what was, what first popped into your head when you were coming up with geology movies? I googled geology <laughs> movies. And what I ultimately, the, the list I I gave three. And the list was The Core, The Brendan Fraser, Journey to the Center of the Earth, and Dante's Peak. I actually haven't seen any of them. But I picked because I had heard that the core had really bad science in it, and I have been wanting an excuse to watch it. And I feel like it's not the type of movie that I would just sit down and watch on a random day. I, like, needed a reason. So it felt like a good choice. So none of us had seen this movie before. Correct. I really wish we had watched this in one of our bad movie nights in college, Will. Like that, or a movie theater, or something, like... I really found myself wishing I had a rowdy audience and or just a huge screen and massive speakers. I was laughing out loud at some of this movie on the couch. And Nick is looking at me like I'm crazy because he knows this is not a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to... My favorite... I think maybe my favorite moment in the whole movie is after Aaron Eckhart and Serge are brought into the, like, basement of the new executive office building by armed guards. They hug and are just having a casual conversation like, oh, how's your wife? My wife is good. Ah ha ha, it's so good to see you. I'm like, 
there's so much happening around you. And also, like, Aaron Eckhart has just been kidnapped under the most confusing circumstances where, like, two, I don't know, secret service guys show up at his university and are like, hey, we've got to take you somewhere. And he goes, where? And they say, you have clearance for it, but we don't. And, like, I have never personally been through the clearance process, but I don't think you can be cleared without knowing. I thought that, I thought the exact same thing. I was like, not only is this bad science, but it's bad, like, representation of security clearance. Also, how do the people who are taking him somewhere not know where he's going? Right. (laughs) I mean, that's one of those things where it's like, the line is supposed to sound cool. But the movie's also trying to have it both ways by having Aaron Eckert undercut it. It's like a weird, like, um, like proto version of like like the Robert Downey Jr. like snarky commentary on the events that are going on while trying to still keep them intense. I would really want to know who was in charge of writing things on the chalkboard in his class because the things on his chalkboard were things that are written on a chalkboard in like like intro geology. This is like what the layers of the Earth are, and that was ostensibly a like graduate level geophysics and geomagnetics course so i i want to know who who in props like (laughs) figured out what to put on the board i i think at the end he says he his like intro geology class he says something about teaching freshmen at the end of the so i think it is a freshman class but i will say i don't think freshmen in college need to learn what the mantle is You'd be surprised by how many freshmen in college I have taught what the mantle is. Earth science was like a full year of school. And if there's one thing I remember, it's the layers of the earth. Oh, you're saying like they should already know it. Yes. I see. Yeah. Um, You would be surprised what freshmen in college come in not knowing. Some of them ask me how to find an average of two numbers at times. That's like, I get the freshman in high school, and similarly, like, you just cannot make assumptions about what people are going to know. Sometimes seniors in college don't even know how to take an average of two numbers. Granted, they're probably not, they probably haven't done it through all of college, so. The other day, I was just trying to remember if I knew how to do multiplication of multiple digits anymore. (laughs) And I realized I would definitely need a pen and paper to get it correct. So my alarm clock will only turn off if I answer math problems. What? <laughs> yeah, actually it's an app on my those? phone. It's an app on my phone. And to get it to shut up, you have to answer math problems. And you can set the difficulty of it. But I'm on like the medium-ish difficulty because when they're too easy, I can answer them without really waking up. But you can't turn it off without answering math, but you can like just keep regenerating a new problem. And anytime it asks me to multiply multiple digits, I'm like, nope, keep going. When I was growing up, Too my early. dad would wake me up for school and he would do the same thing. I mean, he's a math- mathematician, so he would wake me up with math problems. But he would ask me things that I wouldn't even know if I were conscious, like integrals or like the square root of pi. And I was like, I don't know. I'm awake, but I still can't answer this question. My mom just came in and said, wake up. <laughs> and then left. My dad knew that if he didn't try something, I would go back to sleep within half a second. So I think he had to get me conscious enough that I had any prayer of getting out of bed. My sister was the troublesome child in that regard. Mm. I used to be able to just wake up in the morning. Don't know how that happened. <laughs> like, or it, looking back, and like, so I could just 
wake up and get out of bed without falling back asleep and then staring at my phone for a while. <laughs> and then getting a coffee, going back to bed to stare at my phone more, and then moving around. <laughs> I always think about, I think it was something from uh, the AV Club or something, where they were having a conversation at the end of, like, 2010 or whatever year about, like, what should what should they name Game of the Year? And one person was making a big argument for Red Dead Redemption, which had been this huge hit. And they were like, yeah, it's a great game, so immersive. And the other guy was like, it's Angry Birds. <laughs> Angry Birds is the game of the year because Red Dead Redemption was nice for a little while, but Angry Birds changed the way I poop. <laughs> they just came out with a new version of Doodle Jump, and I've gotten oh. really addicted to it. My god, I gotta download Doodle Jump. It's, it has <laughs> levels now. You like collect stars, and then it's like different themes once you reach different levels. I played Doodle Jump on my iPod Touch. I also played Doodle Jump on my iPod Touch. My crush in high school beat my high score on my iPod, and I spent the next like week trying to rebeat it so that I had something to talk to him about. <laughs> <laughs> the things you do for love. Truly. <laughs> so the core is directed by John Amiel. It's written by Cooper Lane, who basically just wrote this and the remake of The Fog. And John Rogers, who, as I said earlier, really did write the film Marry Me, which we covered earlier this year. What that different movie? can't be true. <laughs> it is true. He wrote American Outlaws, The Core, Catwoman, he has a story credit on Transformers, and then no film credits for 15 years until he writes <laughs> Marry Me. But the people actually talk like humans in Marry Me, and in none of those other movies. I mean, I haven't seen Transformers in a long time. And of course, he doesn't write the, He doesn't get a screenplay credit for Transformers. He just gets a story credit. So we don't know that he wrote the scene where a Transformer pees on a guy. <laughs> which is a real thing that happens. In the oh, no. And Optimus Prime has to say, hey, stop lubricating yourself. <laughs> Gross. Which now makes me think it might not be pee. Ugh. But apparently, <laughs> this is the same John Rogers who wrote Marry Me, which is technically a better movie than the core. Um, but I had a good time with both. I did enjoy both. This movie was so baffling in its the the core stops spinning and then birds don't just fall out of the sky that was the saddest dive scene of the bomb. entire movie that was sadder but than was any of also, the people dying in the core it was like sad to me at first but then it crossed over it the got level funny. to extremes and I was just laughing out loud as people are screaming as pigeons are dive bombing them it reminds me birdemic. of birdemic yeah it's very birdemic of course in birdemic they would explode on impact also yeah. they would all be flapping and much like the coliseum explodes i really wish they with had cosmic rays. airplane sounds as the birds were falling out of the sky it's like birds don't make their like second scale decisions based on the Earth's electromagnetic field. This movie has the same understanding of magnetism as every X-Men story ever. <laughs> but I do love how strongly it starts where, first of all, the very first thing is amazing, where you get the Paramount logo, and then the camera of the Paramount logo zooms into Paramount Mountain and, like, burrows beneath that logo until it gets to the molten core and you get the core. <laughs> then it cuts to everyone's favorite holiday, Green World Day in Boston. We all know and love Green World Day. 
Oh my god, I've forgotten about the, like, random business executives at the beginning. Oh my gosh, I had also forgotten about them, where he's like, let's go make 30 million dollars, and then just drops dead. <laughs> he drops dead, and they made him get, have the silliest on face, the glass and glass shot it from the glass onto the glass table. table. <laughs> and then they were like, he died instantly. <laughs> Which is part of the problem with this movie, like, it can't figure out what kind of tone it's signaling. Like, yeah, this is kind of coming late in the stage of, like, the boom in disaster movies in the 1990s, right? Where you get, like, Twister and Independence Day and, like, Armageddon, Deep Impact, Volcano, Dante's Peak. Like, you have all these disaster movies. You could even argue that, like, Titanic kind of fits into that. And I think what makes most of those movies work, forget Titanic, leave that aside, but, like, what makes a movie like Independence Day work or Twister is that, like, they have a real sense of silliness, but, you know, like, Independence Day lets Will Smith be a badass and, you know, welcome to Earth and all that. But when it's serious, they, like, know how to shift to make it serious. And this movie starts by laughing at a dead guy. Yeah. It feels like it's two different movies where the first movie is before they get in the ship and the, the second movie is after they get in the ship. Yeah. And I, I like the kind of sillier first movie better. Did you all think of Pacemakers? Like, before they... Like, immediately? No. No. Oh, okay. (laughs) I was curious. Did you? Yeah, I was like, they definitely all have pacemakers. But with the context that the movie is about an electromagnetic field and, like, it malfunctioning. I was like, what is affected by magnets? And then I was like, pacemakers. Unrelated, Will. I just wanted to say that you keep talking about Dante's Peak, and I was confused. Because there's this, like... I've never seen it. I only know of it vaguely, but slightly softcore, porny, gay, supernatural <laughs> soap opera called Dante's Cove. <laughs> and I kind of thought that's what you were talking about. And I was just <laughs> going along with it until I realized that they're two different things. Yeah. Well, I feel like I would love to see a mashup. I have never seen either. Now, having now read the summary, I kind of want to watch Dante's Cove. Uh, anyway, sorry, pacemakers, I didn't know that the movie was about electromagnetic fields beforehand. Yeah, I knew they had to go to the core, but I didn't know why. Oh, I knew yeah. why, so that, so I had, like, the context. Well, you're also a geologist, so, like, you understood that if something went wrong with the core, it would disrupt the Earth's magnetic field, we'd get hit with cosmic rays. Yeah, I feel like it's more, like, when I, it's because I've talked to other geologists about it, and so when they describe the movie, they're not like, something's wrong with the core, and they have to go to it. They're like, the core stopped circulating, so it shut off the electromagnetic field. Which is also like, if that actually uh, happened, we would just like, die. Like, them getting fried in like, the car, that would just like, happen immediately to everybody. <laughs> right, and like, wouldn't part of, the, isn't that like, part of what also like, keeps the Earth, like, it's related to the like, rotation of the Earth. It's partly... So, wouldn't it affect the spinning of the Earth? Um, yeah, so the circulation of the core, as I understand it, is driven more by, uh, nuclear... What's it called? It's like... uh, Bombs set off in the middle (laughs) of the core by Aaron Eckert? No, um, decay of particles in the inner core that releases temperature, or releases heat and energy, which, like, makes the outer core circulate, like, it's convection circulation, it's not... Because of the Earth spinning. But 
if the core, the outer core did stop circulating, I imagine it would change the like rotational, like modulus or whatever it's called in a way that would really weirdly affect how the earth is spinning too. There are a lot of, there are a lot of holes here. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of figured it would be knocked off its axis in some way. I did assume that the core spinning was related to the earth spinning in general. And wouldn't some sort of like, centripetal force keep it moving in some way i like how they are like project destiny is what made it stop circulating but they don't actually tell you why that like how that works they're like, like what happened we figured out how to launch earthquakes and therefore we could stop the earth's core from spinning the implication there too is that they found a fault that goes all the way from the surface to the core which like is not a real thing that happens either. There's like no like a one fault surface that you could direct rays down to the core. But there are times where like you're piloting Virgil and you find a gap between some tectonic plates and you could just like slip through that okay. gap like a little snake. My problem with the gap between the tectonic <laughs> plates was not the sliding through the gap between the tectonic plates. It's that they said they found a gap in the tectonic plates near Hawaii and Hawaii is like in the, in the middle of a, plate. of a tectonic plate. And you learn that so early in like geology classes because Hawaii is the classic hotspot example. And you're like, wow, how are there these volcanoes when we're not on a plate boundary? It's like very like you don't have to be a great earth scientist to know this. Like, oh my goodness. That I... made, that was maybe what made me the angriest the entire the entire movie. I explained that to my class last week and again i am a history teacher yeah (laughs) i just this movie is perfect (laughs) is this the part where we should talk about what project destiny stands for oh i didn't i don't remember what it stands for so project destiny is spelled d-e-s it's like very much of the era of the usa patriot act where everything in usa patriot spells out the name (laughs) of the law so destiny is spelled D-E-S-T-I-N-I. Okay, I want to guess because I don't remember. I and I capitalized. It's all okay. Capitalized. Is it deep earth seismic You're tomography? No, tectonic interface nuclear initiative. So well, <laughs> you have a lot of the right words because you have uh, deep earth seismic and initiative, but it's Project Destiny D-E-S-T-I-N-I is deep earth seismic trigger initiative with the INI from the beginning of initiative all capitalized (laughs) trigger initiative deep earth seismic trigger initiative wow that's wow I did like that this movie went the classic trope of the disaster film which is just the US military did it yeah but they're like hazier on that because they got military funding like this is a DOD collaboration I like how no other countries are implicated either like it's only Americans working on this they're the only ones who have figured it out because they were paying attention for it because they had the oh, destiny. You're right, you're right. Because I think like the probably the reason DOD agreed to it, and like I guess the reason they wanted Pentagon collaboration was so they could shoot on the aircraft carrier, which doesn't seem like it was worth it. Like just to do that with models. But the military never does anything malicious in the movie. Like they stop the Earth's core by accident, and then like they are kind of a threat in the movie because they're like well we're just gonna have to fire destiny but they're clearly sad about it and they're like we have to do this to save the world like some people are gonna be sacrificed which is like a kind of military attitude 
But it is still irresponsible U.S. military experimenting that is causing the world to end. Yes. Oh, absolutely. They really hammered home the point that the only reason that they would have even thought to create such a destructive weapon is because an enemy could have created a destructive weapon. Like, they say that, like, three times. While we're on this subject, this movie comes out eight days after the invasion of Iraq. Oh, good. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. That's really something. bad timing. (laughs) It also comes out, like, like, six weeks after the Columbia disaster. And so a lot of the reviews were like, wow, you really started this movie with a space shuttle crashing. I feel like it's kind of like when I saw the newest James Bond movie and they, I guess, had made it before the pandemic, but they had that map where, like, there was, like, the contagion coming from all of the cities. And I was like, this map is too familiar for comfort. And that was one where they kept in the press being like, this was going to come out in April 2020. The Los Angeles geography and that scene was great to me. I live in Los Angeles, so I was like, oh, wow, look, it's Dodger Stadium. But I like the implication that Hillary Swank had just on hand the exact dimensions of the bridges over the Los Angeles River when he's like, we're not going to clear it. And she's like, if you take it straight in, our wingspan will just clear it. Like she's like, she like knows how wide those bridges are. Well, it's like when you stop, you know, you go up in the shuttle, you like, you know, you check out some satellites, you stop at the International Space Station, like you get a flat tire, AAA comes, you ask them to give you the maps, they give you a map of Los Angeles. The map of Los Angeles includes the heights of the bridges and on the, the LA and the River. Like, this happens them, yeah, to all of us. Obviously, yeah, exactly. What's unfortunate is when, like, that goes down and, like, there's all that traffic, it's probably everyone's trying to get to the Green World Day parade. Yeah, that happens in Los Angeles. <laughs> Look, we all love Green World Day. Also, I liked how she was like, do you know LA? And he was like, no. And she was like, go to these coordinates. I know LA so well that I know the coordinates of the Los Angeles River. I feel like a great example of this movie's weird relationship to just tone is the scene after it crashes where the guy does the classic, like, oh, he has headphones in. And then he turns around and there's a space shuttle. It's like, is this movie just a comedy (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Who's to say? She also gave the same, this is so, this is like minutia, but she gave the same coordinates to like aim towards, or like the same direction to veer, and it had been like several moments later, which means that if he had like corrected by that amount, he then would have been going to the wrong place. But that- That uh, is- That is a great A great point. <laughs> Did anybody have a favorite example of bad science in this movie? Like, Naomi, you're you're the expert on all this. Okay, well, the Hawaii one was a good one. But another one that bothered me was when they are going down into the Marianas Trench. And they're like, earthquake! And all of the rocks are moving away from each other. That's, like, not what's happening <laughs> in the Marianas Trench. Like, all of the rocks are moving towards towards each other so there wouldn't be an earthquake that like pulled apart like that so that bothered me it has the logic of an asteroid field yeah like it just was like this isn't what the plates are doing here like if they had gone down at like in like iceland where the plates are moving away from each other then like fine but it's not what's happening in the very honest stretch one of my favorite things was also at the bottom of the sea which is uh orcas don't sing <laughs> oh really <laughs> They could have CGI'd any other whale. Like, they had that choice and they chose wrong. Yeah. I think mine is when they just decided that underground was now space. 
and made an asteroid field that's just giant diamonds. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, and that's again like when they're in the core and there clearly is like a molten surface that they are flying over. And then the fact that he just goes, oh, well, I'd like one. I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> now is not the time, Aaron Eckhart. I like it when they crash into the geode and they're like, we gotta get out and check on the ship. Like it's Empire Strikes Back and they're in the asteroid. And they get out and they're like walking around and they're like, oh good, the suits can withstand the pressure. They're in a void. There's no pressure. <laughs> I also really, I got like really hung up early on when, so the all the birds like go ballistic in London. And then- we go to Aaron Eckert's like office or lab or whatever, and he's there with his coworkers, and they're watching a newscast of this on a computer. It's in a distinct window, like it's just a video, which makes sense for 2003. But if you think about like internet video in 2003, there's no YouTube or anything. Like what they probably had to do was like go to the news website and like download a QuickTime video <laughs> of this story from Trafalgar Square oh my God. so they could watch this. And I'm like, are they doing this regularly for news? They could, I know they're academics, but they can buy a TV. Yeah. That scene was frustrating in the same way that um, Gabriela Montez going to Stanford six weeks early was frustrating. In that I was, it, that's just like not how, like your advisor doesn't just get to like sign your PhD all of a sudden. Like you have to submit your thesis to the university and the university has to approve it so him being like if you guys look up these weird news stories i'll sign your phds no questions asked i was like oh let's not give advisors in academia more power than they already have i was thinking maybe he knows his students are dumb yeah right and he like keeps using that he's like if you guys get me coffee today i'll sign your phd real just like looking up weird bird stories like does that earn you a phd in geoscience because if so i think I think I have already, like, surpassed the requirements. According to one thing I read, at least one of those birds hitting a window was actually a trout that the animators <laughs> put in as a joke. Oh, no. There are a couple of things like that. Like, the peach that he uses to demonstrate the layers of the earth, which I think is, like, a pretty effective tool for exposition. Those trays of fruit were working so hard to be, like, relevant. Like, for him to have a peach, they were like... Why, how could he have a peach? Oh, let's put the two biggest trays of fruit you've ever seen in this, like, emergency meeting of world leaders. But, like, like I said, I think it's, like, fairly effective exposition. But what's funny is, like, they tried it multiple times with peaches and, like, the peach never gave them a look they liked. <laughs> so they took an apple, painted the exterior <laughs> of it, and then, like, cut it open ahead of time and just, like, stuck a peach pit into the That's apple. So I mean, you can't cut a peach that perfectly. Right, right, because of the pit, the core. Aaron Eckert also threw up during the flight simulation. <laughs> oh, no. Including, according to one thing I saw, on Hillary Swank's head. Oh, no. <laughs> and there is one shot when they're, like, powering down the simulation where you can see, like, a couple droplets or something on his chin. Gross. Oh. I just want to say... Stanley Tucci is in this movie. <laughs> Stanley, Stanley Tucci walks into this movie looking like... Daniel Day-Lewis in Phantom Thread with like the swept back gray hair. He's got like a he long like, like coat Leno. and he's like coming out of a museum. You're like, that is Reynolds Woodcock and he does not want me eating toast. I just love that he is like a world famous celebrity geologist. Yeah, I couldn't figure out who he was, like why people would like follow him around. Because I don't know that he was a geologist. He was like a weapons 
specialist. No? I could never figure out what his area of expertise was. And also, like, how often do people ask for scientists' autographs? He was like, oh, you want my autograph? Here you go. But, like, when do you go to a talk and afterwards you're like, can I have your autograph, famous scientist? I mean, at one point, Delroy Lindo accuses him of, like, trying to do a Carl Sagan kind of thing. And I think he is supposed to be a, like, more Earth-focused, like, Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson type, like a a pop scientist. I guess, yeah, I guess Neil deGrasse Tyson probably gets asked for autographs and selfies. But one who, like, consults for the U.S. government (laughs) on confidential military technology. Yeah. Um, going back to the bad science, one of my favorite scenes was when Aaron Eckert was doing the, like, MRI through the lead, and Hilary Swank was like, oh, what is this? I've never seen this before. Click, 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 type, type, type. Wow, now it's way higher resolution. Like, that's not how instruments work. I don't, I don't know. It, she seemed really confident. <laughs> she was so confident. She's just the smartest person in the world. Yeah. I assume we'll talk about this when we talk about the romance, but that's one of those scenes where I was like, oh, I can tell this is supposed to play as flirty, it, it but that is doesn't. just not a tool in Hillary Swank's toolbox. Yeah. Like, she can do a lot of things. Hillary Swank has an Oscar by the time she I is in this movie. I was going to ask that where this is in her oh, career. God. She, it feels like an early career, like, part for somebody, but I didn't know if she was already famous when she did this. Yeah, she gets her first Oscar in, like, 98 for Boys Don't Cry. Okay. But then, like... There's this run in the early 2000s where she's, like, doing kind of, like, steely action movies. She's in Insomnia the year before, which she's really good in. Million Dollar Baby, which is her second Oscar, is the year after oh, this. okay, okay. So you can feel her doing, like, I'm doing, like, adult action-y kind of stuff. But that's not really what the core is. This is, like, a Roland Emmerich disaster movie. And it's asking her to be kind of steely, but also the romantic lead and... I love a good Hillary Swank performance. She's just not charming enough to pull this off. This needed to be like, a, honestly, this needed to be like a rom-com star, like a Jennifer Garner. I mean, I would love to see 2003 Jennifer Garner do this role. I think she'd be great. Because also, like, she she's also an alias at that point. Like, she can do it. Right. She could do action. But, like, you think about, like, Anne Hathaway and in Interstellar. Yeah, yeah. And, like, that's kind of the energy this role needs. Um, This movie passes the Bechdel test. Can you believe it? There are two women with names. I cannot. I don't remember that many female characters. There are two women with names. It's Hillary Swank and the woman in control, like, Stickley or something. Oh, Alfre Woodard. Alfre Woodard. Yeah, and they have a conversation about the, like, coordinates when they're crashing the space shuttle. The first thing I thought when the movie came out, I was like, this movie definitely doesn't pass the Bechdel test. And then it did within, like, five minutes. And I was like, wow. But that's feminism for you, I guess. Did you notice that this movie is like a last gasp of the true unipolar American world? Because I think in every disaster movie, major disaster movie following this, there's always a team of international scientists. And this one is like entirely American. And of course, the team of international scientists is as much about changes to the box office as it is about changes to politics. Yeah, I mean, right, there's the like fair the enough. Pacific Rim uprising where they're like, oh, we're going to base this movie in China. I Yeah, I mean, it's that too, but it's also just like, it's so funny seeing this movie with only American scientists. Well, there's one French scientist. Yeah, you got Sir. I didn't know he was but, French But for he's a while. in America. Yeah, true. I do think this is interesting as a pivot point in the politics stuff, but also in sort of like disaster movies, because, you know, Naomi, you've alluded to the special effects a couple of times. (laughs) And I think this is like roughly the end of the period where 
digital effects were expensive enough that you weren't going to use them a ton. Mm. This was the thing that Roland Emmerich was so good at with things like Stargate and Independence Day, where it's like, you're going to get a couple of big spectacle special effects things, but then a lot of the rest of the movie is going to be like guys in rooms talking about stuff (laughs) because that's cheap. Right. And this movie, you can feel it starting to tip the other way where there is a lot of like people sitting in a thing that like they could put on a rig and shake it if they needed to. But a lot of what's going on in this movie doesn't require any special effects. But once they go into the core, you're getting a lot of like digital junk swirling around. And like by the end of the decade, you're making the day after tomorrow and 2012 and Pacific Rim or Independence Day resurgence or Geostorm even. Geostorm is better than a lot of those <laughs> movies where it's like just so much digital nonsense yeah. where in a way it becomes less impressive right. because when you can do anything, it's not as interesting what you choose to yeah, do. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like that's true even in modern movies where like sometimes effects aren't as good as if they would have put the time in to actually make it like physical because they can CGI everything. Right. I'm not impressed to see like an alien necessarily. Cause like, yeah, I know like you can build that on a computer, right. but if you like build a mask, right. I'm like, Oh, somebody had to design yeah. that and figure out what it looks like. And, and that's kind of what's charming about those nineties mm-hmm. disasters movies as opposed to independence day resurgence. Yeah. All right. So we've been talking for almost an hour. <laughs> yeah. This movie was a flop. Uh, it opened in third place. The box office was dire in March, 2003 when everyone was focused on war. <laughs> Uh, the movie made $31 million in the United States. How much did it cost to make? Yikes. $85 million before advertising. Yikes. That's um, speaking of the advertising, news. there's the line in the movie where Rat, a totally useless character, <laughs> says that he wants to be paid in Xena tapes and Hot Pockets. In the marketing, they must have done multiple takes. There are TV spots that show him asking for Star Trek tapes and Hot Pockets. And Spongebob tapes on Hot Pockets. Do you think that they had Xena, Star Trek, and Spongebob in a bidding war? So those are all Paramount properties. I would have liked to have seen a bidding war. I don't know about Xena, but Star Trek and and Spongebob are both Paramount They should have done it with, like, Hot Pockets, like, some, like, chip, and asked them all to bid. There is a surprising amount of product placement for a movie that mostly takes place in the center of the the earth. Um, How dare you say that Rat is useless when he said, can I help? And Aaron Eckert said, yes. Rat could almost entirely be replaced by Alfre Woodard and change nothing in the You're movie. Right. Because you just need somebody in the room who wants to help them. And Alfre Woodard is already there doing that. But instead they have this weird character. But I guess his virtue is at the end of the movie, he can go to an internet cafe and email everyone the truth of what happens. Right. And if you pay attention to the file that he sends, it is called unsungheroes.doc. He emails every news agency in the world a Word doc summarizing the events of the film. But the it's core. like it, it's like shown as a as a folder with everyone's pictures in it. <laughs> Honestly, iconic. Iconic. I just love that it's a Word document. Oh yeah, not even a Doc X. But I don't think that existed yet. Probably not. James Cameron hadn't invented it. <laughs> All right, I think Mark was trying to move us to the romance, and I think we should talk about the romance of the core, such as it is. Uh, so every week we break down the romantic plotline into five points to guide the conversation. This week, that unenviable task fell to our guest. <laughs> Naomi, will you take us to point one? Yes, so I really had to dig to get five points out of this, but point one was okay. Aaron Eckhart and Serge both discuss that they have a romantic relationship with their jobs. And Serge makes the comment that I thought was funny that his job is his wife, which makes his wife his mistress, 
Which is why they're still married. And that's why they're still in love. Yeah. I think that's funny. I thought it was funny. Serge is the best character, I think, in this movie. Well, I don't know. Maybe not, but he's great. I like Delroy Lindo a lot, but I'm predisposed to like Delroy Lindo in anything, and I like his little round glasses. He's also great. I think it's interesting that whenever they're talking about Aaron Eckert, they call him Dr. Whatever, and then they just call Serge Serge, which makes me wonder if he's like... Like, presumably he also has his PhD if he does, like, intense weapons research, but they don't call him, like, doctor whatever. I don't know. Maybe maybe he was, like, drummed out of the academy for for underground weapons experiments. Maybe that is just his vibe, but it's way more likely that a geology professor would go by their first name than, like, a physicist. Like, none of my geology professors ever went by doctor whatever they all go by their first name this is the kind of fact checking that we brought you keys on yeah dr keys yeah dr keys i jo- just remembered joshua his keys? name is that right luke luke joshua I th- yeah oh I'm surprised i remember that <laughs> yeah so that's point one i don't know that there's a lot more to expand on it seems like almost oh well this is actually point two it seems like everyone except for serge is unmarried like everyone is single in this movie does anyone else have a spouse or a partner? It feels like Bruce Greenwood should. Like, that would maybe, the... like, give a little more punch to his death when he has to, like, sacrifice himself. He's the other Terranaut. Okay, I kept the thinking one who of died him as first. the president from National Treasure. That's what he is. <laughs> and he's uh, Captain Pike in Star Trek. And I think he's the DA in People vs. OJ. Bruce Greenwood's great. The scene where he died was kind of confusing to me because I didn't know there were three people out of the vehicle and then all of a sudden he was bleeding and i thought it was aaron eckhart bleeding because they had their helmets on for a second i thought aaron eckhart died and i was like oh bold choice yeah i know me too i was so confused not very well staged scene in my opinion well aaron eckhart did sacrifice his own oxygen for the whatever was happening with the cobalt crystal (laughs) i also was like not like totally paying attention when serge died and so when i like tuned in again i was like i know someone's dead And the movie will tell me who. There's a lot of Aaron Eckhart just like screaming when they're for a long time. For a really long time. I thought it might have been Tucci for a second. I was like, no, they're gonna milk his death more. Him smoking a cigarette. But yeah, you're right. Like nobody seems to have any life beyond this. And with you know some of it, you're like, sure, Delroy Lindo's in the desert (laughs) making a giant air laser. Right. I guess like Alfre Woodard and. Richard Jenkins, they could have had spouses outside the movie. It's hard to know. I fully did not process that that was Richard Jenkins. Is Richard Jenkins the bald military guy? Yeah. Okay. I don't know actors' names that well. I don't know any character names, so (laughs) unfortunately, (laughs) that's what I have to go off at the moment. I know Aaron Eckert and A movie where you recognize... A movie where you recognize every person in it, you're never going to learn the character names. I know I know Aaron Eckhart and Hilary Swank by their real people names, and then everyone else I only know by their, like, characteristics. I don't know their actor names or their character names. Yeah, that's fair. Well, they really, like, play up the romance, or, like, that Serge is married, but then nobody else. Like, you'd think of the, what, how many people go down? Five? You'd think that some of them would have a, like, none of, none of their deaths are that tragic because they, you don't know anything about, like, who they're leaving behind other than Serge. 
And that's why I think Bruce Greenwood is kind of the best candidate to have had a family because, like, Hilary Swank would probably have met them. Like, that would be a thing for her. Just, like, slap a wedding ring on him and we're already more invested. If they just cut the amount of time that Aaron Eckhart spent screaming for Serge... (laughs) Yeah. They could have fitted a whole backstory for another character. They really could have. Did Serge also have a kid? I feel like there was a he kid in that photo. two yes. kids, I think. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Should we move on to point three? Point four sure. will bring us back into a similar I, I, realm. I think we've plumbed all the depths that we can from this one. <laughs> point three is a bit abstract, but it's the anti-romance between movie writers and any real science. And I have actual context for this. My advisor, who's a tectonics like focused geologist, was actually a consultant on a on a movie. I think it was twenty twelve, but sure. it might have been San Andreas. And he has testified to me that they like hire science consultants. The science consultants consultants inevitably say all of this is wrong, and the movie writers get to say thanks for your input we will credit you we now have a science consultant and can cite that we had a science consultant even though we're not going to change anything i just rewatched the episode of nathan for you with the claw of shame that was where so funny. he i haven't seen that one talks with the magician who teaches him to escape and says can we can list you as a consultant and the guy repeatedly says no and then at the end it just cuts to consulting <laughs> by blank and includes a picture of him and that's what the role of the geologist feels like in this movie yeah yeah like i can almost guarantee you this movie had a science consultant and they probably said yes. like all of this is not right. I should have looked up who it was. Maybe I, like, have come across them. Yeah, I mean, the science and entertainment exchange is a thing. We talked about it some on our Palm Springs episode, because, like, when Kristen Milioti is, like, consulting physicists to figure out how to get out of her, like, time loop, she's talking to an actual conceptual physicist who works with them. But, yeah, there's just a real sense of, like, who cares in this movie? It's like, I feel like some... Some science, you don't, like, need to be correct. Like, it's, it's like, for the purpose of the movie. Like, I don't think anyone really thinks there's, like, voids in the mantle. But, like, if they want to put one in there, like, that's not even my biggest gripe with it. My bigger gripe is that they punch a hole in it, and then it doesn't fill in for, like, a solid ten minutes. So, as a scientist, <laughs> how quickly after the Earth's core stopped spinning would the Colosseum explode due to lasers from the sun? <laughs> that was so, that whole scene. It, like, why is it only targeting ancient Roman architecture? Well, because it was, like, lightning, right? So I was like, why is this hitting stone? Right, and it's beams of lightning just racing through different Roman landmarks, but yeah. not really hitting the rest of the city. I don't even know. I mean, I don't know that much about, like, the atmosphere, but I don't know. So you're that... saying it's possible? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Put me on record. I don't know that lightning would be, like, the thing, you know? I think we would, like, burn from solar radiation, but I don't know that it would be, like, actual lightning storms. So it would be closer to what happens in San Francisco with the melting of the Golden Gate Bridge. Yes, I think actually that was the more accurate version versus the birds and the exploding of ancient Roman architecture. (laughs) I honestly respect this movie's commitment to anti-science. It's got a confidence that a lesser movie would keep explaining itself. And this movie's just like, no, you got it. You heard us the first time. 
I think there's a lot of things in media where, like, if you're an expert in it, you might be distracted by the inaccuracies. And what bugs me in movies with bad science is when the science is so bad that even people who aren't experts in it are like, what is happening? Like, I'm a geologist, so maybe I'll notice, you know, that, like, in the Marianas Trench, it's, like, the wrong direction of fault motion. But, like, a lot of people would just be like, oh, it's an earthquake, that's fine. But, like, a lot of the stuff is like, why is this happening? This, why are birds falling out of the sky? This doesn't make any sense at all. And it's so I did funny. read one review that was like, wait a minute, so the Earth's core stopped going, which means that birds can no longer figure out how to get from, like, Lord Nelson's hat to his feet on the statue. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Don't you know birds don't have eyes? The they movie explicitly says they do not navigate with their eyes. They navigate with magnetism. But, I mean, most pigeons just have cameras that were implanted by the government. So I did a project with my students where they had to disprove a conspiracy theory. And multiple students tried to do that. And I was like, no, it was started as a joke. Yeah, I mean, it was started as a joke. I think that actually that would make this movie more accurate because... Government drone pigeons are a lot more likely to navigate via electromagnetic waves than, like, actual bird pigeons. So maybe this movie is proving the birds aren't real theory. Imagine if Project Destiny, like, triangulated its targets using bird drones. And again, that's Destiny with an I because the I and I is for initiative. Because the I and I is for initiative. Um, The hostile relationship between movie writers and real science is probably the most important piece of romance i think it's been our big theme yeah point four we've already kind of touched on but the sweetest romance in the entire movie is the love that serge has for his wife romantic love for his wife but also love for his children and we don't really get that much of it like enough to make you invested and sad when he dies but then he just like dies i feel like i mean i constantly forgot that serge was a character Mm, i liked him i thought he i i was a fan what was the deal that, oh, when they hit the diamond, right? That's when he was in the compartment. Yes. That got ejected. It was very convenient that each, like, compartment only got harmed in the order that it was in the ship. You know, they were able to just, like, let go single compartments at a time. Yeah, that was kind of cool. Convenient. Yeah, but, like, the ship was designed for this mission. But the ship wasn't designed for, like, the back compartment to get hurt. And then be ejected. And then the, like, next one to get ejected. Like That's true, because I guess they were initially, the plan was to drop the whole payload in one go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It was clever design. It just was, like, movie convenience that it wasn't, like, the one closest to the control place that got hit by the diamond. And then they had to eject the entire thing. Yes. I don't know. It worked out. They saved the Earth. Hey, that's all that matters. I was confused by their exit strategy, which maybe we should have talked about before, but they were talking about how they had to go back through, like, the same hole that they made, but then they just did not at all. Yeah, and I think the point of going back to the same hole- that doesn't make sense to me either. I feel like the hole would fill in. I think the point of going back through the same hole is, like, it's a lot faster. Yeah, but it shouldn't still exist. Like, it, for the same reason the void in the mantle shouldn't exist. Yeah, that's a good point. And maybe it's just for recovery. Like, they want to end up in the same place so that they can get picked up easily. Thank God they found that hole in the tectonic plates in Hawaii. Yeah, thank God those orcas were singers. True. I don't know if there's much more to say about point four, about Serge. No, not really. With his, with his wife. And then point five is what we've all been waiting for. Aaron Eckhart and Hilary Swank kiss 
with no buildup at all. I think it's not a romantic kiss. I don't think it's a romantic kiss either. I think it's like a I think it's a holy cow, kiss. we did it. The only follow-up is that they show them, like, snuggling, kind of, when they're, like, floating around in the dark. So my counter-argument to that is that we see them snuggling after they've, like, lost power and they're at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, that's true. I think it's, like, a warmth thing. Yeah, you're probably right. I didn't think the snuggling was especially romantic either, but that was, like, the only thing I could grasp on too. I do think that if you put another person in the Hillary Swank role, a lot of their interactions possibly read as romantic. I think you're right. And I think the way they're written, it feels like sometimes they're supposed to. Like, when they're kind of, like, needling each other. Yeah. It feels, like, weirdly hostile as it's performed in this movie. Yeah. But, you know, if it's an Anne Hathaway, or if it's a Jennifer Garner, yeah. you could see it as kind of flirty. And then when they kiss, it's like, we, we're relieved we're alive. But also, maybe now is this going to be something? Well, and the movie ends with him sending the file out. But if it ended with them, like, holding hands, walking into the sunset or something, then you would be like, oh, okay, that still doesn't make sense. But I guess they're together now. Yeah, I'm glad that it doesn't. You know, I yeah. like that when they think it's just going to explode and they're going to die down there, that, like, they have this hug that... We're recording this, like, right after Andor premiered, and I just saw Rogue One in the IMAX re-release, and, like, that's a movie that has, like, a male and female lead that never have a romantic thing going on, and it ends with the two of them, like, hugging on a beach as they die, Mm. and, like, that hug of the two of them in the ship, I was like, oh, this is kind of like Cassian and Jin in Rogue One. Yeah, yeah, true. And then the kiss that they have feels so non-romantic that it didn't change how I felt about that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. This was, like, 0.5 because it was the only romantic gesture that happened, like, potentially romantic gesture that happens in the entire movie. But I agree that it wasn't particularly romantic. But given what we have, Naomi, would you say you find the romance of the core believable? The non-existent romance in the core... I find believable that there would not be a lot of romance in this mission to save the world. Sure, you don't <laughs> want this to get be too flirty. Right. One of my friends, my um, fellow grad students, and I like to track academic romances through papers. Like, sometimes you'll be, like, reading a paper with co-authors, and then all of a sudden they have the same last name. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> I wonder how much science contributed to this relationship blossoming. But I think in this instance, that would have been distracting to the, like, the goal. Like, save the romance for later. Okay. So, every week we rate the believability of a movie's romance between 0 and 10, where 0 means we believe nothing and 10 means we believe all of it. So where would you rate the limited romance of the core? I give it a 10. Totally believable. So, like Roger Ebert, you believe that this is a, a, a peer of Congo's. I forgot we give Congo a 10, too. Oh, that... <laughs> honestly, perfect. You sold me. This is a 10, too. I'm going... I'm going 9, just because I think the movie hasn't totally decided whether it's romantic or yeah. not between the two of them. So, I'm gonna go just That's beneath fair. Congo. But it's it's up there. I'll, I, I, I change. I'm at a 9 now. <laughs> now... Naomi, do you think that, let's just say um, Aaron Eckhart and Hillary Swank, do you think either of them is dateable? Yeah, maybe. I, I think you'd have to be the right type of person, and I think they would both have to 
like, work less if they were to be any good in a relationship. I like it when they try to make him look, like, more like a professor by just, like, messing up his hair a little bit, but he's still Aaron Eckhart. And they put, like, shoulder, or, like, elbow pads on his jacket. I don't know if they actually did that, but I imagined them there. Uh, Mark, what do you think? You gonna date Hilary Swank? Um, no. (laughs) No. She seems a little too into the military-industrial complex for me. I mean, that's the price of NASA, is the thing. Like, it's cool, but there's a lot of military going on. I think they're objectively dateable, but, like, not for me. Yeah, I don't think they'll stay together because I don't think they're getting together. I agree. Yeah, I agree. If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? I'm going Alfre Woodard. I think that she is a responsible, reliable person. She works for NASA, which is cool. Yeah. And she's great. She Alfre gets to Woodard. stay on the voice. ground. You don't have to worry yeah. about her as much. Uh, I think I'm going to go with Delroy Lindo because he's a good time and invented a weird underground spaceship that I kind of love. And by all accounts, invented a bunch of other stuff that Stanley Tucci stole from him. <laughs> we didn't talk that much about Stanley Tucci. I think he's too busy thinking highly of himself to have any love. Yeah. Nobody's worthy of Stanley Tucci. Totally. Um, I think I would pick Serge. He just seems very loving. He had that, like, cute picture from his kid that his kid drew and, like, the picture of his wife and kids in his notebook. So I feel like I would be well taken care of if he survived. All right, last question. Do we need a musical adaptation of the core? It would be fascinating. I would love to see it. I would love to see an attempt. How do you think they would... Do you think they would just put a big black curtain over the front of the stage and you would just get noises? Because, like, when they're in the core or, like, in the center of the earth, you can't see anything. I would love them to do something with, like, lots of platforms. So they're literally descending as it goes on. Ooh, I like that. But no, this would be a terrible musical. It'd be stupid and bad. (laughs) All right. I think we've covered the core. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you so much us. for coming on and uh, talking geology with us. We and needed your expertise. <laughs> Next week we will be covering a very different movie with honestly kind of similar stilted speech. We will be watching Yorgos Lanthimos, The Lobster. You know, another movie with some important scientific questions. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help other people find the show. Last question, Naomi. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from this movie? I think the best dating piece of dating advice that I got is not to be too tied to your work so that, number one, you can meet potential partners, and number two, so that you're not sent down into the core of the earth to eventually die unless you're presumed romantic partner is also on the ship i mean that's great advice (laughs) um i think i'm gonna say that the best dating advice is (sighs) my advice establish dominance over people you're interested in by being better (laughs) at machines that they invented is this about how stanley tucci (laughs) what no this is about (laughs) hillary swank walking up to his weird imaging machine Touching all the controls and fixing it and just going, like, you're welcome. He didn't even invent that machine. It was just an MRI. Yes, but it was better. True.
Yeah, that rocks. Um, I'm going to say inspired by rat. Um, <laughs> just like send people word documents and maybe they'll fall in love with you. <laughs> sure. If you send a All word right. document to everyone on earth, perhaps you'll <laughs> maybe, be able to find a romantic Maybe you'll find love. Uh, <laughs> this is like my, um, my, my rom-com that I <laughs> need to write about somebody who discovers that the person in his apartment building that he has a crush on has an unsecured network printer and so he starts printing anonymous love notes to their home (laughs) oh my goodness all right well until next time i'm gay and i'm a ginger so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance bye Bye. Bye. i have a dream i hope will come true you're here with me And I'm here with you I wish that the earth See the sky up above Will send me someone To love us